Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast. I'm Andrew Teacher and I'm joined by Paul Clark, who is Head of European Property for Australian Super. Paul, lovely to see you. It's been a while. And last time, I think last time I saw you for a cup of coffee, you were working for a different country and you were part of the Crown Estate. And now you're part of, obviously, a, another wonderful part of the Commonwealth with Australian Super. So what has the last two years been like there? Hi, Andrew. Nice to see you. Yeah, well, Crown Estate was a 13-year tenure. A commendable stretch, wasn't it? Yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Left there in 2020. And I was the chief investment officer there when I left. Joined Australian Super towards the end of 2020. So we're getting on for two years now. Gone very quickly. But of course, when I joined in early November 2020, I did so remotely. And never saw the inside of the Australian Super office until June 2021. And at the point I started, we were a team of one. So at at that point, you would have had the privilege of speaking to the entire real estate investment team for Australian Super in London. Mm. And the story of the last two years has been establishing the team, establishing our presence in the marketplace and building the brand and getting to the point where we can transact. Yeah, yeah. So you've had a, a pretty fascinating career that's covered you agency side. You worked for the church commissioners, talked about the crown. What have been some of the highlights over the years in some of the various shops that you've worked at? What's really motivated me, certainly for the last 20 years or so of my career, has been the types of organisations that I've worked for and those two that you've mentioned, Church Commissioners and the Crown Estate and also Australian Super, are all businesses with a clear sense of purpose, their values led and that influences the way they do business and not just what they do. And it's really how they do it. Yeah. And that's really been for me, the great pleasure of working in those organizations. You tend to have a really interesting range of colleagues, usually people that could work somewhere else for more money, but choose to do what they do. And it gives you an opportunity in all those organizations to take long term positions and to really feel as though you can build something for the future. And if I look back at my time at the Crown Estate and I think of the partnership we put in place with the Norwegians going back 12 years ago, 11, Norges 12 years in, ago in now. Well, so we had Norges yeah. on the, the podcast several months back actually talking about that. And that was a position we were taking for the long term. Mm. That, was, that, that was their first big entry into the market, wasn't it? It was, yes. And it came with quite a bit of interest yeah. at the time. But it was also, from the perspective of the Crown Estate, a game changer in respect of our business model and how we were setting out our store for the future in respect of the way we ran our business and who yeah. we wanted to be. And what it also tells you, I think, is when you get involved in a joint venture, of course you want the commercial financial aspects of any partnership to work, but the most important thing is the cultural alignment Mm. of the two partners. 
And was there a deliberate decision on your part to work in these sorts of organisations? Yes, I'd say it has been. Because you were at Donaldson's for a while, which became DTZ, among other. Yeah, I was at DTZ for nearly a decade. And I got a great grounding as a general practice surveyor in those sort of organisations. But since I've left private practice, I've been increasingly drawn to the sort of organisations that do have a really clearly defined purpose, Mm. do have a set of values that you can buy into and are able to make long-term decisions, which helps to set their investment strategies apart from some other businesses. Mm. And in terms of Australian Super, it's an organisation that grew out of the Australian trade union movement, which obviously gives it a certain degree of heritage, but structurally the organisation is quite different from other large investors, isn't it? I think we're a very clearly focused business because we are there for members' profit and to provide the best possible retirement outcome for our members. In UK terms, we're a mutual. The money comes in from our investors. Yeah. And it's our job to turn that into excellent returns for the members in their retirement. We don't have any other third-party money. We're not worrying about fund management fees. We can be solely focused on delivering returns for our members. And I think that gives us both a really clear set of values and focus, but also importantly, it means we can be long-term in what we do. The average age of an Australian super member is only a little over 40 Mm. and something like 3% of them are currently in retirement. So that means we are still quite an immature pension scheme. We're going to get materially larger over the next few years. Mm. Consequently, we need to do things at scale. At the moment, the fund is around $260 billion Australian, so about £140 billion in sterling Mm. and that doesn't mean we have to deploy money at scale and also we want to be able to put it to work for the long term so strategic positions are important to us and are those becoming more difficult we'll come on to king's cross and canada altar in a minute but does that desire and that requirement for scale now pose restrictions on the sorts of things you can do because there aren't many opportunities that have a Canada water-sized 53-acre gap in the investor sphere, are there? No, you don't come across that every day or even every year. But what I would say is that, and I know this is a rarefied atmosphere, Yeah, yeah. you also have less competition for scale and also for projects that require a degree of longevity. So it does give you the chance when the opportunity comes along to take that chance to be involved. But it is true that we have to be pretty selective because what we can't have are 20 tactical positions. Well, I was going to say, you you don't have the diversification benefit that an investor might have 10 student housing buildings and it doesn't matter if three or four don't particularly perform well because you might have three that kick the lights out. But you can't really work on that sort of strategy can you no but at fund level we've got 
plenty of diversification. Yeah. And I would also argue that, yeah, take King's Cross, for example. There we've got residential, which we develop, offices, restaurants and shops. We've got an awful lot of customers. We may not have the geographic diversification, but there's a fair bit of diversification through the different uses and customers that we've got on the estate there. Yeah, oh, absolutely. From pizza to posh shoes and gas holders to Google, there's lots there. We had the partners of Argent on talking about the curation at King's Cross. That's certainly a podcast where we're picking up Rob Evans and Nick Searle, always a great double act. Um, I encourage everyone to pick that podcast out of the archives. And in terms of some of the recent news you've announced at King's mm. Cross, you've secured a long-term debt position with Morgan Stanley. Tell us a bit about that and how you found completing that as the market has tightened up a bit. We're really pleased with that and it's um, credit to the team that secured the deal. And as you know, Andreas, not a great market at the moment for debt. However, what However, this... I would have thought people would be literally jumping over their own families to be a part of that sort of opportunity. Well, exactly. And I think what this tells you is about the quality of the asset, mm. the reliability of the owners and the expertise of the managers. And that package is not necessarily widely available. What it's also doing for us, and I think it's an important part of the, the King's Cross story, is that we're changing yeah. from a construction development project to a mature real estate business. And this takes us from development and construction debt on a project by project basis to something that looks more corporate with portfolio wide mm. debt. And that is part of the maturity of the platform there. We're now increasingly in the customer service business. Yeah. We've still got a reasonable amount of construction to come, but all but one of the planned buildings on the main estate are now in construction. Mm. And we're three years, maybe a little less, away from the completion of the main estate. And how we run that portfolio needs to reflect what are increasingly stabilised assets. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, with Canada Water, you're essentially starting the whole process again. Very exciting it is too. 53 acres, as you've said, adjacent to the river, just to the southeast. A very different centre. kind of site, isn't it? I, I it, suppose it will the... be. It's less urban. It's already greener and it's got the river adjacent it's to it. Clues in the name, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a bit of water at King's Cross too, but more at Canada Water. There's no doubt that as time moves on, your views on sustainability and how to create a livable city develop. And it's a great chance for us to put those into practice. There's going to be 12 acres of new parkland as part of the 53 acres. And what I believe we can do there, along with our partners, British Land, who we're delighted to be investing alongside, our chance there is to create a new destination for London, not just a collection of buildings, but something that's more substantial than that. And when I look back at my career over the last, how long is it, 20 or 30 years or so, 
now, successful regeneration projects in London tend to have three characteristics. Location and Canada Water being on top of both the overground and the new Jubilee line fits that bill. Scale. And that means that you can not only just put up a few buildings, you get the chance to influence the spaces between the buildings, the public realm. Yeah, yeah. And the third element is a commitment to quality. And for that, you need investors with long-term time horizons. We've got all those three things at Canada Water, and that makes us very confident about the outturns we're going to get there over the next 10 or 12 years. And in terms of reassessing, given the current environment and all of the various things that make up the environment, whether it's construction costs or differing views on returning to the office, how have those things affected your appraisal of that opportunity? Well, I think it's fair to say at the time we were quite cautious in our underwriting mm. and we were expecting construction inflation. We were expecting interest rates to trend up. They're probably going to trend up higher than any of us expected at the start of the year. But importantly, and this is where that the third of those characteristics come into play, mm. We have got two long-term investors here, and in particular with Australian Super, we can work off the sort of time horizons that mean we're able to look through short-term market volatility and take long-term positions where strategically we like the market that we're investing into. And over a 10 or 12-year project, things will ebb and flow, interest rates will go up and down, Yields will move, rents will change. We think if we Prime get this... will probably change as well. Well, that does tend to happen. And I think what we need to do is look through those shorter term um, do, you, do you think the market... Do you, do you think... I mean, this is not really a question for Australian super, more a question for the REITs, but do you think the markets, and when I say that, I mean the public markets, properly understand and value that? I think there is a problem with the way we value assets. And I'll misquote Bobby Kennedy now and say that we're very good at valuing things that perhaps don't matter so much and not so good at valuing the things that really do matter. Mm. And there is a tendency to look at quite a small number of narrow range of metrics and to look at them on a quarterly or a half year or an annual basis and not look out at the value that you believe you can create over the longer term and I come from a background in my previous job of being prepared to spend more money on a building more money on the public realm more money on ESG and taking the view that you will get a return from those investments mm. through some of those more narrow matrices your rents will be better your yields will be tighter your tenant your customer retention which is the intuition that comes with the experience you and, yeah, That is not always easy in the very short term to nail down on the bottom line. Hmm. Well, I suppose in the public markets, analysts are simply looking at how many buildings have you got, what's the rent, how long are the leases hmm. and to whom. And in terms of the valuations profession, is there a sense that they haven't quite caught up on aspects of placemaking that I know you're very passionate about? I don't think it's just the valuation profession. I think all asset classes have 
this issue. What you can do, I think, and where you can be precise is that you can draw comparisons in terms of the way other substantial regeneration projects have behaved over the last 10 or 20 years and the regeneration premium that they've been able to take advantage of because of successful placemaking. And that does therefore mean that you can expect stronger rental growth, higher end values than if you were just developing a building. Mm, mm. That's fair. I mean, let's talk a bit more broadly around the wider strategy in terms of your role with Europe, in terms of how the organisation is looking at things globally. And you mentioned that you're interested in other similar sorts of opportunities. How are you going to make those stack up given the current climate in terms of development, in terms of going in and committing to pretty seismic development risk? It's a good question. And I'll start off by answering it the long way round and just take a step back and explain what our strategy is yeah, yeah, for, please do. for real estate at Australian Super and then hone in on what we're particularly trying to do in Europe. We have a real estate investment strategy which is based around thematics. So we are looking to take advantage of changes around digitization, demographics and placemaking in society and the economy. And we think if we can do that, then we will drive outperformance from our property portfolio. Out of the London office... And what's, what's the, what is the allocation to property? Just at the really? moment, we're sort of in the order of 5 to 6%. And is that going towards 10, 15 or...? I think that will probably be pretty static in the short term. To and is that as a term. result of the equities just being devalued over the last year or is this sort of a general longer term? We've been at that sort of number for a while now and in an environment where we expect the fund to materially grow over the next few years, that still gives us plenty of headroom for further investment in property. Yeah. Now that, based on those key themes that I've been talking about, From the perspective of the London office, where we're still a relatively small team, there's seven of us as of today, and we're also managing our US property assets from London for the time being, and that seven's in the context of an office that's grown quite a lot lately. We're we're 62 people as we speak. We're going to focus on a relatively small number of things because of the size of the team we've got. And also because I sort of think that when it comes to real estate investing, because it's an imperfect market, you're better off doing as few things as possible as well as you can and really getting underneath the skin of the markets that you're dealing with. We've majored on city centre mixed-use investment and development. We think we can take advantage of those themes through that. We've identified a limited number of European centres where we think in terms of the scale, liquidity of the market, that that will work for us where we like the demographics. Mm. And, and these are all value plays, opportunistic? Mm. What, what, where? Well, at the moment we've been development driven because that's where we've seen the opportunity to drive out performance and particularly, mm. for example, in the office and to some extent in the residential sector, building new and building into the world that's developed over the last two or three years, I think is a better place. And is that a relatively new phenomenon, that? 
in your career, would you have had to build new five years ago? In five years ago, would you have been happy buying something that was three well, years old? slightly different parameters. Because, because the implication yeah. from that is that you wouldn't buy something that's three years old because it was built pre-COVID. I think that's more of a challenge, particularly where pricing has been. And that's more of a challenge because of COVID, because of the climate. And also because of what COVID did to a large extent was just accelerate trends Mm. that were already there. We could have told you at the Crown State in 2018 that people were changing the way they wanted to use offices and the way they were living and working. It just sped up during 2020 and 2021. And that using offices for collaboration and innovation team building, for example, was increasingly the way we were going. And that if you were going to own offices, it wasn't just enough and it isn't just enough yeah. to sign people up on five or 10 year leases and wander away and come back in due course. That you needed a much more granular, active relationship with all of your customers that are coming in and out of your buildings every day. And without that platform, I think it's quite hard to be an office investor going forward. None of that's changed. I think in some respects, it's easier to own buildings that are 20 or 30 years old than three or four. Yeah. Because they're not stuff full of expensive kit that you might have to reorganize. Well, and then the the economic case for sorting them out is clearly a bit more easily made. That's right. So I'd say it's pretty consistent with where we've been for a little while. And, and what countries are on the radar then? Can you tell us any? Yeah, I can tell you what the priorities are. Obviously, London, number one, that's where the office is. That's where we have a very strong network. And particularly over the last couple of years, where we've liked the relative value play. Mm. And that's where the Canada Water investment came from. Otherwise, probably the next cab off the rank is Berlin. We really like the demographics there. It's hard to We're, get scale, though, isn't it, in Berlin? Well, It is second or third biggest office market in Europe. So actually, I think you can do that. Mm. And because it's still relatively underdeveloped, there are fewer people living there than in the late 1930s. It's still catching up with its status as the capital of the largest economy in Europe. And consequently, you can see plenty of headroom in more than one sector and it's somewhere where we think it's probably easier to access the market than for example Paris which can be very tight and lack transparency so I suspect that's our next port of call that's interesting we We had the boss of Austria on a few months ago he said some similar sentiments to you on that front I mean just going back to your point on owning buildings that perhaps are 25 years, 20 years old. What is your your policy on divestment or the ownership and improvement of brown assets? And following from that, where do you see pricing going? We don't own much in the way of very elderly real estate because of the mm. the age of the But are you actively and... looking to acquire it and no, to improve? not today. We've got much more of a focus on either core or develop to core and probably the latter in the shorter term. Yeah. Given that we're entering a period of greater uncertainty for the investment markets. So the bill to core erodes that uncertainty by me making sure that... You're not betting the the farm on a rent and a yield day one. Mm. It gives you the opportunity to inject your money over time. But equally, are you? I guess the counter would be that 
perhaps you cement yourself to something which might yet change further. Well, you'd better be sure that you like what you're doing. Then. <laughs> when you're in a market that's more challenged and there are going to be winners and losers out of the next couple of years or so, you need to make sure that you've made strategic bets that you're comfortable with. And I think that for us means sticking to our thematics and looking for opportunities that fit where we see the economy and society going. Yeah. And Paul, in terms of the strategy, in terms of the sorts of opportunities you're looking at, what defines a, an Australian super opportunity? Well, some of the things I've said before. So obviously scale is really important to us and location. But very importantly, the people we're working with mm. and at Canada Water, we're delighted to be in partnership with British Land. When, when Emma Carriaga, who's been on PropCast before, and obviously Roger from Argent's fame, a familiar face, you'd be hard-pressed to find two better people in Europe, really, for that sort of project. The depth of the expertise at British Land and the way they like to do business works very well. Mm. And it's a core us. part of British land strategies, yeah. their whole focus on campuses and creating those long-term places. That is what British land do. In many respects, are, you know, again, closely aligned to our own strategy, more specific on London, and perhaps we will spread our wings a little more broadly than that, but a lot of similarities. And in terms of, I suppose, some of the current uncertainties that we're seeing, whether that's around home working or e-commerce and some of these big prevailing trends and the response to the climate emergency, how are those going to impact on the sorts of opportunities that you look for? So interestingly, logistics isn't currently part of your European plan, is it? It isn't, but it would be if we could get comfortable with entry pricing because we do believe in the strength of the underlying occupational markets. Yeah. My concern over the last 18 months, let's say, since we've been in a position to actively invest, yeah. has been entering the market at the back end of a bull run. And I don't regret the fact that in Europe, we have stayed out of logistics up until now. But there is a case for the business to invest in that sector. We have done that in Australia, where we've got a joint venture with Logos. But you're right, you really need to take a step back and to think about where the winners are from the changes we're seeing in the economy and society. Mm -hmm. More than anything else, more than interest rates or cap rates, rents, changes of prime minister, it's going to be, I think, climate change that will have the largest influence on real estate values for the rest of our careers and lifetime. And you need to look at the sustainability of the locations and the buildings that you're getting involved with. And what does that mean that you would do now? Give me a real world example of something that you do now that you might have advised a client the opposite of back in your Donaldson's days? Well, I think what's feasible now, for example, is to look at the services that go into buildings and increasingly you're not going to supply 
you're heating through gas, for example. And that's you know, something yeah. just in the yeah. last couple of years, it's become clear how you can avoid doing that. And also what we've, yeah, what we've known for quite a while and perhaps phrased it differently is that where a building has to be in a sustainable location, if you're sitting on top of public transport links, then you are in a sustainable location. Mm. If you are close to where people want to live and work and enjoy themselves, then you are in a sustainable and, location. And that's, and that's arguably the big strength of Canada Water, that it's not a location that's totally matured yet, is it? It isn't. That's one of the great things about it. It's an opportunity for us to create a new destination. And a few, more, a few more trees in King's Cross. <laughs> well, it has well. that, yeah. <laughs> it is a little less urban and it has that opportunity. But both of them are about placemaking. They're about creating fresh destinations for London that do different things. That's the wonder of a city this large. And the journey we're, we're going on will see us, I think, get to the point where we've not just built a few office buildings and some flats. Actually, we've created a new environment and mm. new communities, and we've done that in a very sustainable way. And, and the, resi, the resi element's a huge part of Canada, isn't it? So that, I mean, it's not just a few homes facade. It's a huge, considerable chunk of the scheme, isn't it? That's right. Depending on exactly what we build out, and the master plan's quite flexible in that respect, somewhere between two and 4,000 homes. Yeah, and that's nearly as many as the planned at Wembley. A very significant element of it. And you see that clearly as part of that long-term demographic-driven real estate allocation that makes sense in the kind of structure that Australian Super has. A greater allocation towards residential, perhaps, than you might have had 10 years ago. Yes, that's right. And if we're looking ahead at things we might do, I've talked about the city centre piece. A subset of that, I think, will be residential. And that'll be probably in the PRS sector, possibly in student. Mm. And it will be a bit more flexible in respect of locations. But again, it'll be city centre based and probably UK focused at least initially, again, because I think we like the potential returns that come out yeah. of a less mature market yeah. in the UK compared to some continental European countries. And there is a life science element, isn't there, at Canada Water That's in right, terms yeah. of the links to some of the local NHS trusts, not too far from Whitechapel as well, big teaching hospital And I, I'm sure Roger, when you spoke to him, would have given you chapter on verse of the opportunities there, but... That's right. You don't need to go to Oxford or Cambridge for it. The same applies to King's Cross, where we have an option on the St Pancras Hospital site. Yeah, next to Oriel. Yeah, that's right. And there are opportunities there to focus at least some of that onto the life sciences sector because of the proximity of hospitals mm. and further education establishments. And where do you see that? Is that something you feel like sheds has become a bit too hot or are you reserving judgment? Well, it's one of those sectors that's not that well defined. <laughs> that's fair. Well, that's true. That's for sure. I think if you just want to go out and buy a life science building, whatever that means, and it can be a pretty broad church, and you look in that arc of Oxford to Cambridge. Yeah, yeah. And you're also looking at lot sizes that are in the sweet spot for an awful lot of funds, then 
there's a great deal of competition. Yeah. And again, I would rather do something at scale. I'd rather build it and I'd rather focus it on locations that we're already involved in and where we can see the synergies between that type of use and I mean, you can, you also, the, I mean, you reserve the right also just to, to change course if you need to, don't you, as well, which yeah. means you're not buying something specifically for one use and being forced down that path. That's uh, right. That's but right. I thought that I mean, the, the St Pancras mm-hmm. Hospital site is, is the absolute perfect location. I mean, that's dead centre of where everybody's seeking to be. We've got a little bit of a way to go on that at the moment, yeah. but it certainly has its advantages. Mm. No, absolutely. And I think as someone that's gone to that Moorfields Hospital for 30 odd years and it's a horrible little basement I'm looking forward to seeing that redeveloped as well so that's going to be interesting I mean in terms of the future what do the next few years look like I mean you know you've had an amazing career doing some working at the top of the sector for many years what would you like to achieve over the next few years and really be able to look back on as an absolute hallmark of your career over the next cycle do you know I don't really think of it in that way I look at it from the perspective of what I'd like to be able to help Australian super achieve mm. over the, the next few years. And I set myself three P's as a target when I joined. There'd be one related to people that we would establish a really credible and respected team mm. in our sector in the UK and hopefully beyond. From the portfolio perspective, that we will own a collection of assets that we're really proud of and set us up for long-term outperformance. And in respect of profile, that we've taken our our proper place within our peer group and that we're respected for what we can do. And people are really clear about who we are and what we're about. Mm. Well, I guess most of the industry is going to know you, Paul, from your various roles over the years. And one of the many interesting roles you have is on Pathways to Property, which is a charity focused on helping younger people. Tell us about that and about your role alongside people like Paddy Allen from Colliers, who, who's involved, and Emma's involved with it as well, isn't she? She has been, yes. Emma, that's Emma Carrier from yeah, British Land, yeah. as, as well as Liz Peace, uh, my former boss mm-hmm. from back in the day. Um, what does Pathways do? Why should people get involved? It's something that's very close to my heart. I've been involved for quite a number of years now and it does what it says on the package. It's there to provide a pathway into the real estate sector for students from non-traditional backgrounds and coming from a working class area in South London originally and finding my own way into the profession, I know how difficult it can be to really understand what the real estate sector is, what the opportunities are, and just down to how do you behave? And Where did you grow up, Paul? Camberwell and then Tooting. Okay. Obviously a slightly different environment from now. Particularly the former, yeah. And I think it's really important that we get genuine diversity into this sector. And that's socioeconomic diversity. In its its fullest sense. As as well as everything else. Yeah, in its absolute fullest sense. And that's when you really get a broader range of opinions, more challenge, and consequently better businesses making better decisions. And one of the really interesting things about Pathways is 
that you get to talk to these kids from poorer backgrounds whose family haven't sent anyone else to university who don't have a really clear view of what professions look like. They don't have any first-hand examples to draw upon, but their determination, their intelligence, they're incredibly articulate as well. And you, you see so much raw talent mm. that you just want to have the opportunity to help it find an expression for itself within the real estate sector and pathways is designed to do that. And how do people get involved? What should people listening to this do? Well, I think if you're a corporate, and an awful lot of the major players in the real estate industry are already partners and make contributions to what Pathways does. But if you don't already do that, there's a great opportunity for you to be involved and to help fund some of the things that we do. We go on outreach to schools and get involved with educational establishments that don't generally send people to mm. real estate courses. We provide work experience for six formers. And probably the most high profile thing we do is there's a summer school at Reading University for a week in July each year that generally we have somewhere around 100 students on. And it gives them firsthand exposure to how the course there in estate management works at Reading. A number of us from the senior end of the real estate sector go down for a day to talk to them. They get to do projects and see various developments and assets and begin to understand what it means to work in the real estate sector. Hopefully then they go on to do real estate courses, either at Reading or somewhere else. And Pathways also can support them through that process. Mm. And that's a big part of it, but just in terms of opening up those opportunities to yeah. people that can't necessarily afford it from the off. Final question, Paul, what should the role be for pension funds in terms of financing the recovery that Britain, Europe's going to need coming out of what's to come? How would organisations like Australian Super envisage working with governments, establishments, in terms of funding the sorts of big-ticket, long-term quasi-infrastructure projects that we've been discussing? Well, first and foremost, Australian Super will act in the best long-term interests of its members because we are there to provide them with the best possible retirement. However, what we can do is invest for the long term, and we've been talking about that, and we can take substantial positions. And we can invest in infrastructure, we invest in real estate for the long term. And I think the role of government is to be clear what it wants and to set out stable environments so that investors can understand how they can invest and the best way to work within the strategies that the macroeconomic outlooks that governments create. That's mm. no, uh, very well put, very well put. Well, look, thanks so much for coming in to see us. Lovely to catch up, Paul. I'm sorry it's Good been so long. I have to leave it under a decade next time. Mm. But fantastic to have you on. Paul Clark from Australian Super. And do pick up some of those conversations that we mentioned during the interview with Argent, some of Paul's friends over at Argent, Robert Evans, Nick Sell, uh, Emma Carriaga, 
who mentioned at British Land. She has been on the podcast before talking about retail, talking about Canada Water. And we will doubtlessly have to have Paul back to give us a bit of a status update in a year or two's time. But if you've got any other guest suggestions or you'd like to send any feedback, please do send it in. You can subscribe to PropCast. Just search PropCast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts from. And uh, we'll see you back here very, very, very soon. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.